The goal isn't to change people's beliefs. The goal is to say, just be more accepting of people that have different beliefs. Be more empathetic to them. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but don't hate on them. They just have a different worldview. They came up from a different background. And there's reason and rationale behind what they think too. They're not crazy. Welcome back to the DWD podcast, a platform focused on ending polarization through conversation. It's been a minute since I've said that, Asher. Yes, yes, it has. Uh, today, we are joined by Arjun Muthi, and we are very excited for this conversation. Arjun, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here and uh, excited to have this conversation. Fantastic. So for those who are already not familiar with you, could you just give a little bit of background of yourself and the work that you're doing at The Factual? Sure. So I'm a co-founder and CEO of The Factual. We're a small startup based out of the Bay Area. Uh, my co-founder and I started the company about four years ago, and now we've grown the team to about 10 people. Um, we very much like you guys, uh, you know, we, we're thinking about how our conversations, our day-to-day conversations have changed uh, around the news. Joe and I, like, we're geeks. We talk about the news all the time. And increasingly, we found that instead of talking about the issues, we were debating more the outlet where we heard the news. It's like, oh, of course they would say that. You, you know, of course, like, no wonder they would. How do you know that's true? And it seemed really counterproductive. We weren't having good conversations. We were just arguing. And so we um, thought, well, that's not really productive. There's, there's got to be a way to do this better. And being two naive engineers, we thought, oh, yeah, throw technology at it. That'll solve everything. And so we set out to build a company that we thought could help people find uh, more credible, less opinionated, uh, more thoughtful journalism that they could then learn uh, from and, and talk about. Uh, we tried a few different uh, product ideas. They promptly failed really badly. And uh, as we combed through the record of our failures, then we came across uh, what turned out to be the factual and uh, what we do. So the very short version, we've got an algorithm that rates the credibility of individual articles. Uh, based on dimensions that we all associate with high-quality news. We do that for 10,000 articles every day, and we curate the best stories across the political spectrum on each topic, and we have a newsletter and a website that makes it easy for people to get. Absolutely. Can you remember the first time that you really found yourself drawn to the news, since you are, just like Joey and I, very engaged with news and politics? Oh, man, this is embarrassing. Um, I, my very first job was a paperboy. Oh, I love uh, it. When I was 12, uh, maybe even 11, actually. And so I kid you not, I was a nerd even back then. And when I was delivering the newspaper, I just thought it was kind of cool. And I would flip through it. I didn't understand half of it, but I just thought it was kind of neat. Um, and I've always liked writing. I'm not a very good writer, but I do like writing. Um, and I love reading. I, I really, like, at the heart of it, I just love reading good stories and news. It's like my, my wife always tells me she'd, I'd be happier with a magazine than with her. And there's a small amount of truth to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I've always liked reading. I've always uh, cared to learn about the world. I find well-written stuff really fascinating. I can think of, I can remember articles I've read 20 years ago in the New Yorker or the Atlantic or something like that that really had an impact on me. And so for me, I was actually, you know, when I saw that the news world was going through this turmoil, Back in, you know, um, 2015, 2016, I thought, this really sucks. Like, here's an industry I really love. It's getting ripped apart, somewhat rightly so, uh, and there's a lot of garbage out there. 
this just doesn't feel like the world that I knew 20 years ago where I think news is really valuable. So I wanted to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So it seems like your platform is focused primarily on written content, stuff that's digitally pub- published. But over the past few years, we've seen a slew of new forms of media in the form of social media news and, and other platforms which are providing news. How do you um, reconcile the fact that you're fact-checking digital platforms that are written content and also there's like this complete other aspect of visual content which people are also gravitating towards? Yeah, so the the simple version is uh, we do everything on written content just because the algorithm is good at analyzing text and to be told most algorithms in the world do much better on text than they do on visual kind of imagery and audio. Um, it's much harder to run algorithms on those kinds of things. So part of it's just convenience. It just kind of works. Um, a lot of the signals that we look for, links, quotes, um, opinionatedness, author history, some of those apply to text, like links and quotes. You kind of, you know, you, text is a lot easier to pick that up on. You don't really have the concept of a link per se in audio. Um, but other things actually do apply beyond text. So one of the key signals we look at, for example, is author's topical expertise. Have they written on this topic before? Have they written extensively on it? Do they write exclusively on it? And so in a world that's more uh, audiovisual, you can still run those kinds of algorithms. You can say, look, you're doing a little 60-second spot on social. That's great. What have you done before this? Mm -hmm. Have you always talked about this? How in-depth is it? Do you only talk about this? So we can apply some of the similar concepts when we get there. But yeah, we don't do it yet. Uh, we're still a very tiny startup. And what we need to do is really prove that we took one media format being text and really nailed it. Like we're very good, very reliable. People trust us. They find value. They use it over and over. And then you've built a basis of, okay, you have something that works. Now let's go expand it. That's a, a great way of thinking about things. It's, it's the same way Joey and I are approaching our work with depolarization because it is such a vast and permeating topic. It's not just something that affects news, but it affects our daily existence. It can even affect conversations about sports. One of the most interesting aspects of your website is a feature called Burst Your Bubble that really Mm -hmm. piqued my interest. How do you think your site can work in efforts to depolarize things like the news using that Burst Your Bubble type of mentality? Yeah, you know, I think um, our th- there's research out there that says when people are really set in stone in, in their ways or when they have their views, seeing opposing views actually entrenches them mm-hmm. into what they believe. It's like, no way, are you saying I'm wrong? And and you know, they dig deeper. But what we've seen with our readership and what we've heard from the feedback is that seeing thoughtful reading and writing on both sides of the political spectrum is actually enlightening. The goal isn't to change people's beliefs. The goal is to say, just be more accepting of people that have different beliefs. Be more empathetic to them. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but don't hate on them. They just have a different worldview. They came up from a different background. And there's reason and rationale behind what they think too. They're not crazy. So that's, I think if you, if you think about it from that frame, then you can understand what we were going with Burst Your Bubble and, and what we do in our newsletter where we curate these different viewpoints. It's not to say that, oh, I bet if, you, you know, if you're a right-leaning person, you should read all this left-leaning content or vice versa, and that's how you know, your whole worldview will change. That's not it. I think your worldviews are set in a lot of ways based on your frame of reference and your upbringing. But I think we just don't know about other people's viewpoints. 
we're so focused on our ways and, and in the communities we live in. So the, all of these features, I think, open us up to saying, okay, I get it. I, I see, I understand why you think that way. And, and I'm talking like the, the hardest topics that we have in the US, you know, uh, guns, immigration, abortion, all of these things. The more that I've read across the political spectrum, the more a moderating effect I've found myself uh, feeling where I have a little bit of, you know, left-leaning views, have a little bit of right-leaning views, and think that's actually kind of normal. I don't think we're uniformly left or right, Any most of us. Mm-hmm. In the context of polarization, it's definitely difficult to recognize, acknowledge, and respect another perspective. But how do you go about actually allowing people of differing perspectives who are on the extremes of one end or the other. How do you go about presenting ideas that are differing to theirs without actually offending them and with while still being accepting of, of other beliefs? So I think um, what we found is that with few exceptions, and when I say exceptions, I'm talking people that are really, really set in their ways and just are like, I'm right, you're all wrong. Like, forget those guys. Talking about most of the people, what they appreciate is a well- structured, thought out, write up, right? They don't have to necessarily agree with it, but it's like, okay, I don't think the person who's writing this has bad intent. I don't think they're trying to confuse me or mislead me. They're just laying out an argument for what they see on this issue. And I think as humans, we have a really good bullshit meter. (laughs) And if we feel like we're being sold, like someone's trying to ram us into an argument, we naturally repel. If we see that someone's presenting an argument just thoughtfully, good evidence, not in a lot of inflammatory language, goes deep, provides context, hits history, you can be going, okay, that was, in, that was insightful. I learned something. You know, I'm not sure how it affects my beliefs. And so that's really what the factual algorithm scores. So the four things we score are, is it really well-researched, an article? So the links and quotes, how diverse, how extensive, relatable, non-repeating, all kinds of other things. Uh, is it super opinionated? Like I said, we don't want opinionated. We want more factual, more authoritative. Has the author written on this topic, the author expertise, and then the site reputation. Sort of historically has the site put out high quality stuff based on our scores. When you run that algorithm, the really cool thing, like when we built it, Ajoy and I, Ajoy is my co-founder, we thought, ah, eh, big deal. It's just going to rate the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal as number one. Like, whoop de doo who cares? But the happy outcome was, wait a minute, all these smaller outlets are rating really highly. And if you peel back what I said on what we rate, think about it, it's really just a proxy for expertise, right? If you know a topic really well, you'll tend to cite your work heavily. You'll tend not to be as opinionated just because you understand that issues are complex. You would like it to be black and white, but actually there's a ton of gray. You write on it a lot. And you're probably writing on a publication that cares about that topic and writes on it a lot as well. Maybe other authors do. And so collectively, this was a proxy for expertise. There's no popularity signal in here. We don't care whether you're the New York Times, whether you have 5 million hearts and likes and followers and retweets. None of that factors into the algorithm. So the upshot is we were starting to surface all these really good uh, quality journalism from these smaller, really focused outlets. And when we presented that to people at either end of the spectrum, I think what we were seeing is people saying, wow. That, was, that expanded the range of views that I even thought about on this issue. So sometimes people think, you know, the moderates have it right or the extremes have it right. I think that most of our issues are so complex these days 
that it's good for us to have a range of viewpoints. I do like the hard left and the hard right. I'm not against them. I think they're expanding my viewpoints to maybe a fringe that I didn't even appreciate before. I don't have to agree with them, but I appreciate reading about them. I'm more of a moderate internally, but that's okay. I like seeing it all. So that's where I, I wind up, Joey, is I think show them a well-structured argument that's really well-written. And uh, I think people are open to reading it more easily. How do you know you're not just preaching to the choir of people who are just like you? And I would put Joey and I in, in a camp like you who try and select or try and taste a lot of different beliefs. How do you expand it to potentially even those people that you said you, you wish to exclude a little bit, those people who are very stuck in their beliefs? Is there any hope to bring them back to a sense of empathy for others? I do. I do think so. Uh, and so here's one way we know for our... Um, the site and newsletter, we run Facebook advertising just to build up cohorts and get data. And so we target people that like uh, left-leaning publications or like right-leaning publications. And initially, I thought, you know, this is yet another liberal thing. Like, we'll just get a bunch of people that like left-leaning outlets. Nothing. And shockingly, we're like 50-50 split on wow. recruiting. And, I, and we didn't even set out this way. It's not because our budgets are tuned that way. We just threw it out, see what happens. And we get that. And we have a bunch of people that are hard left and hard right. Like I've had, we've been flamed by people that are big Trump supporters. We've been flamed by people that are big AOC, Bernie Sanders uh, supporters when we get things wrong in our newsletter or something. But then usually what I've found is I'd write back to anyone that has criticism and say, hey, that's interesting. That's a good point. You're right. Or actually, this is what we were thinking. What do you think? And first of all, they're all shocked that they get a reply. They're mm -hmm. like, wait, you wrote back and you didn't get mad? You actually engaged with me? And I think that immediately just kills all the vitriol. They're just not used to anyone being nice and really engaging thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. So then we have like a discussion. They're like, you know, I think you might be right. And I'll say, yeah, I think you're kind of right. We go back and then they sometimes become our biggest fans. There's this guy who routinely retweets us and he's on Parler, you know, that uh, conservative mm -hmm. social network that just started. And so he's been talking us up there. We're not even on that network. <laughs> and he's talking us up there. And he's like, you guys have to check these guys out. They're really doing a good job of unbiased news. They're not left. They're not right. They're just trying to give you the facts, help you make a decision. Um, so I do think there's hope. I don't think, like I said, there's with few exceptions. I think most people are actually just busy trying to go about their day, go through their job, pay for their bills, feed their families. Like most of us are pretty normal. We're not crazies. Mm -hmm. And the news should just, you know, hopefully be useful, not like rage inducing news. That's horrible. Definitely. I think so many people in today's age just want to be heard. And unfortunately, we're seeing the worst of that when, when communities feel like they aren't heard. And, and it's this fascinating dichotomy between communities that have historically been marginalized, who definitely have not been heard, who have not been given access for generations and still to this day in many places to the same types of outlets that people who might look like Joey and I would. But simultaneously, other, especially men who do look somewhat like Joey and I are white, but may live in a rural area also feel like they're not being heard. And I think that there's a, a bit of a unique position with news where the target tends to vary quite a bit in terms of who they're looking for, for their listenership or for their uh, readership. 
Have you noticed any interesting demographic breakdowns from your community? Do they, uh, aside from just political leaning of, of potentially where they're from? Yes. Um, now, to be clear, we actually try not to collect too much information on our readership, in part because people are quite fed up with being tracked and, and being analyzed six ways from Sunday. So actually, we maintain very, very little information on our users, other than some Facebook targeting information that we get. And, and Facebook, by the way, even though people flame out Facebook, actually, Facebook doesn't give you a ton of information on people that engage with your ads for privacy reasons. So what we can tell you is, Yes, we seem to get a pretty good split of uh, political leanings. We have a pretty good range of uh, geography. So we have users in all 50 states and I think now about 40 countries or so. And within the states, rural and urban areas, I don't really have a good uh, offhand percentage of rural versus urban. I would guess we probably weigh a little bit more urban, but we have certainly a number of people that are rural. There are people that have tried to pay for our service that didn't have credit cards. Um, that uh, had only PO boxes, like the kinds of things that you would expect perhaps in uh, less urban areas. So we do know that those people are out there reading our stuff. Um, like I said, I, the more that I've been doing this project, and I don't know if uh, you guys have found this, Asher and Joey, but the more I've done this project, the more I find we have a lot more in common than people realize. It seems like we're butting heads all the time, but actually when I sit down and talk to anyone, I'm like, I like what you said. I, I kind of agree with you. And he might vote completely different to me, but I just... I like what you said. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, some of the things that uh, we ascribe to, like, well, you come from this part of the country and you come from that, so of course you'd be different. If you strip away a little bit and just sit down, you're like, actually, we kind of have the same ideas and goals, you know, maybe slightly different approaches to it. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's interesting, the judgment between a computer and a human. Obviously, when comparing something or determining whether something is good or bad is very different um, for the two things. Obviously, for a human, we use a heuristic to determine if something is of quality or if something is good in our eyes. For a machine, it runs through multiple, multiple sets of data, da data sets, numbers. Uh, you're the computer guy. I don't really know much about this stuff, but this is just my understanding so far. And it determines based off of all the data which one is best. Um, though there's one thing which is lacking in a computer or in, in some sort of code, and that's a sense of humanity. Um, do you think that that almost hurts your, your brand or what you're aiming for? I think that uh, we have to be very careful in seeing what our algorithm does and what it doesn't do. Um, and I try to explain this at length in the FAQ and in our about page and all these kinds of things. Uh, the algorithm is a good first level filter. So every day in the U.S., there are about 10,000 news articles that come out, 10,000 news articles from like 800 or 1,000 different outlets. It's insane. Like, which one's showing up in your feed today? How do you know that that was a good one or a bad one? So our algorithm's very good at trimming like the 90% that are junky, just mediocre, repeating generic statements, not really advancing the discussion or giving you new insight. We filter it down to like the top 10%. And like I said, it actually spreads pretty well across the left and the right. And then we group it by topics and we say, okay, here's like a big issue today, you know, USPS, what's going on there? The right saying one thing, the left saying one thing, they're butting heads. It feels like this is going to imperil our elections. What's really going on? Try to give you a few viewpoints on that. Um, but ultimately the computer and the algorithm can't do some things that only humans can. It actually cannot say if a statement is true or false. Lots of people try to do this. It's extremely hard. A computer can only say this looks like it is probably true. 
we deal in the world of probabilities and computers, not in absolutes when in, the, in the kinds of things that we do. So really that grade, you know, for each article, we have this grade from between one and 100%. It's a probability of being credible, not a you are credible or not. So if you get an 82%, it's like, look, this seems pretty likely to be credible, but you, Mr. Reader or Mrs. Reader, have to make that judgment call as you're reading. But we've told you that all these attributes that tend to be associated with credible information are present, the sources, the expertise, the non-inflammatory language, et cetera. And we've given you a few of these. Across this, you're going to find the answer. So, Joy, to your point, I don't think, you know, if, we, if the algorithm came across saying, I've got the answer, like just put your brain on pause, read what I've got to say and, you know, coast, then I think there is no humility. And it's saying that the computer does everything for you. And it's actually not that at all. The computer just gets you, you know, the head start. It clears out the trash and it makes your life easier on a day-to-day basis. But you still have to exercise judgment. And actually, I think that that's a very important thing because what makes society work is if we're all really good at critical thinking. If we look at information and we pause and we're kind of skeptical and go, wait a minute, what about this? What about that? How did this work? If we all were better at that, we would make better decisions as society. And that's what I think where the algorithm needs to leave off. It needs to bring you close to the finish line and say, okay, I've set you up for success. You use your judgment and your critical thinking skills and finish it up. And if more people do that, boy, we're going to vote way better at the polls. You know, that's, that's at least our theory. Mm-hmm. That seems to give a lot of faith in individuals that, or make an assumption at least that they do have the critical thinking skills. That's, that's a place where I might differ slightly because I see a massive fragmentation from our school systems in particular and our education wherein we're taught to respond and give up our information as if we're like a bank, right? Information is deposited into you, then it's asked for a withdrawal. Many right. times I have not seen that critical thinking developed. And so to that end, what gives you faith that people all across this country do have the critical thinking skills that are necessary? Or second to that, what could we change about the way that we operate to improve our critical thinking skills? So what gives me faith is people like you and Joey. <laughs> I mean, look at you guys. You're young and you're sitting in a room somewhere in Long Island and you're producing this podcast trying to save democracy. What the heck? When I was your age, I didn't do that. I was goofing off and wasting time. You we know, do our, we do our fair of- share of that as yeah. large. And- <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate it. Well, though. what I mean, though, is that I see um, it's a cliche that, you know, the younger generation will go on to lead and, and oh, my God, they're either really good or really bad. But the more I see of the younger generation, I think that you guys, every generation gets a little bit smarter. And the reason I say this is even though it might seem like the younger generations waste their time and are spending way too much time on TikTok or whatever other uh, nonsense there is, I see that you guys balance out the frivolous with the really thoughtful. You're actually taking in a lot of information in many different mediums. Uh, Your pop culture stars are thoughtful. You know, I'm not, okay, pardon me if I get some of this wrong, but even think about people like Beyonce or Nicki Minaj or, you know, any of the younger generation people that you look to, they're thoughtful about social issues and political issues. They're not just like, I'm here to make money and, and, you know, go off into the sunset. So I think younger people actually are more aware and more thoughtful of what's going on out there. And they're finding their way to 
to um, exercise their voice through things like podcasts and social. Um, I see, I see the next generation as being far more engaged than even my generation was. I see people like uh, Alexander Ocasio Cortez and and other young leaders, even on the right, um, that are really just inspiring people to stand up and be like, yeah, damn it, I'm going to do something. Whether you agree with their policies or not, I think they're inspiring. So I don't know. Overall, I'm just, I'm hopeful. I see, I'm, I'm, I'm by nature an optimistic guy though. So, you know, it's, uh, it's my flaw, but um, I do see that. And, and, you know, our core readership initially started out like 40 somethings, I'd say 30 to 50, 35 to 50 was where we started because that's my age group. So we started there. Sure enough, that's where my original network came from. That's where we started draft people. And I was kind of amb- not ambivalent. I just didn't know if younger people would go for it. I'm like, really? Muse? Like when I was 19 or when I was 22, I just wanted to play soccer and go out and I, I could care less about Muse. Um, uh, I mean, I was a nerd, but you know, those are my priorities was, was going out. Um, but just uh, on a lark, we started to uh, share our, our information on social social and Kat, our, our social media director, she started that and she was really bullish. She was like, I think you're going to find a lot of engagement on Instagram. I'm like, really? Don't people just go to Instagram for pretty pictures and I don't know, time wasting. Who the heck wants to read news? Like text and Instagram just seemed like the worst idea to me. And she's like, just try it. And so she did and she stayed at it and she did a really good job. And we've got a bigger following on Instagram than we do on Twitter. I mean, what does that say? You know, Twitter definitely skews older, Instagram skews younger, and somehow we get better engagement there. We get a lot of really thoughtful comments there. We get people writing into us off of what they saw on Instagram. I don't know. That gives me a lot of hope. Here's a network that people are supposed to be just wasting time on, and yet they're engaging with hardcore news on it in a thoughtful way. Certainly. There's definitely been a shift I've, I've noticed lately. We recently spoke with uh, one of our friends. His name is Thanasi. And he does a lot of work in the civic activist space. But prior to doing all that, he actually ran his own version of a news network. And it was all on Instagram, amassed over 50,000 followers. Kind of surprising. Wow. Because you would imagine that on a platform like that, just as you're saying, you want to see your friends or you want to see beautiful pictures. But what I will say in pushback to kind of to, to that kind of idea is there's a way of infusing the two. It becomes a bit difficult. Like microblogging. Yeah, microblogging has been kind of popular. Um, the way that his news network does it, it's called Politicized News. A uh, little bit of a shout out for Euthanasi because <laughs> he'll probably be <laughs> listening to this. Um, it, it basically has all of the blog inside of the text. So it is just like a, a blog that you would see on a website, but instead it's you know in your feed. The difficulty I'd imagine with it is making sure that you do captivate someone's attention. That's where it becomes a little bit more difficult because yeah. you do have to game the psychology and be contextual to an app like that. It's something Joey and I have noticed for ourselves. If our, the quality of, say, our video doesn't look great, if we post a clip on Instagram, no one's sharing it. No one's engaging with it. And so that bec- the complication there becomes, and, and to spin this into a question uh, on your end, the gamification of news or the beautification of news do you think it presents a problem to having an unbiased news source uh, or is it you know just another part of how we adopt to a new generation yes it does it does very much present a problem so there's the problem of if your news revenue model is driven by advertising 
and viewership, you will invariably fall into the trap of rewriting headlines and gaming for clicks. Um, and you see news organizations swear that they don't do this all the time, and that's crap. Mm-hmm. Um, I know from a lot of journalists I've spoken to how few get to write their headlines. They write the whole thing, but then headlines is done by someone else that's optimizing it and trying all kinds of tests to find what drives clicks. A lot, how many times all, all of us have clicked on articles where the headline was not even, there's like a tiny sliver of what the actual article was. It's like, that's, wait, the, the whole story's here. And, you know, you kind of just kind of cheated me when you, when you wrote that headline. So I do think that gamification happens. Um, I'd like to, you know, a lot of uh, news outlets want to say that, well, we have to do it. It's like an arms race. People's attention spans are short. Like what, if we don't do it, would you rather they didn't read us at all? Like let's cheat and capture their attention, but then it at least got the straight news. Um, and I find that be kind of a, a weak argument that's underpinned by the revenue model. So what we, you know, the factual is a subscription service. We have no ads and we're very proud of it. And we're going to stay that way as long as I can. Um, and on the subscription, we want to make it very affordable because one of the things that I feel is going on is we have enough subscriptions in our lives. Um, and I don't want to add to that fatigue and that financial burden to people. I want it to be affordable so that lots of people can get high quality news at a read price. And the way that we have it, because we we're more of a curator than writing news, it actually can be economically viable. So I think we start with a different business model and then our positioning is unbiased news, no ads. And so we don't look for headlines that are trying to, to grab your attention. Look, this is what it is. And at the end, uh, you know, I think Asher, like, look, we have this theory on what people want, that people just want the straight facts presented in an easy format. We give them little summaries so that we know, we know you're all busy. Let's give you little snippets that you can skim. But it's not meant to be attention grabbing. Oh my God, let me share this. It's going to get like millions of likes because it's so crazy out there. Um, and our theory is there are a lot of people that appreciate this and want this. So that's it. We're going to go try to prove the theory. I don't know if that's 10% of the population or if that's 90% of the population. I hope it's really large, but I don't know. And ultimately, I think I don't care. I don't want to add to the problem of saying, well, let's, let's gamify our thing so that we can get attention. Uh, if that's what we do, how are we making a difference? Like, then we're no better than anyone else. And I'm not even a journalist. I'm an engineer. What the heck do I know about journalism? So I don't want to go into that place where I'm not even good and I don't think I add to the solution. We'll try a solution and we'll see what happens. In regards to the gamification question mentioned earlier, do you think that there's the potential in the future to actually have unbiased news? Yes. uh, Yes. Ish. Mm. So uh, fundamentally we believe that anything written by humans has some bias because everyone has a frame of reference. We grew up a certain way. We have certain assumptions about the world. So when we write something, it's going to look, you know, it's going to be framed a certain way. Take, you know, social issues, geopolitical issues, anything like that. They'll be framed a certain way. So to get unbiased news, what does unbiased really mean? First, individually, the journalist is really trying their best to present an objective point of view on the story. They're providing facts and contrarian viewpoints and context and history. That's really good. There's probably still some framing bias, but that's pretty good. Now, if you read two or three pieces like that from different points of the political spectrum, people that maybe disagree, but have each tried to put forth a really cohesive argument with really good supporting information and non-inflammatory, 
then I do think that you get to quote unquote, the unbiased view. And I say quote unquote, because the reality is people can't even agree on what is a baseline against which to measure bias. So if you're going around saying, well, that's really biased, like relative to what, <laughs> who, who said that that was the baseline, you know? So that's why I'm saying quote unquote. Um, but I think it's, it's something that we all, many of us aspire to or wish to read unbiased news. And I think collectively we think of it as I wanted to be objective. I wanted trying to convey information factually and give me context and history. And I don't want it to try to mislead me or to push me to a viewpoint. That's what we mean by unbiased. We're not saying it's perfect, but we would like it to be better than most of the crap out there. And I think we can do that. Certainly. Do you think mass media companies like you know CNN or Fox News can follow in your footsteps to follow in the subscription model? I know other news platforms have done that. So like New York Times, many people and many of my friends as well who like to read the New York Times get very frustrated by the fact that things are behind a paywall. Do you have any faith that what you're testing now can be applied at mass scale with what they already have existing? I do, but I don't think they will do it. Um, I think we will do it. And I'm not being, um, I'm not bragging per se. I'm just saying that when you have a business that's highly successful, like CNN and Fox on one business model, it's extraordinarily difficult to change the revenue model to something new. I mean, it's like changing your DNA. It's so very hard. There's a reason why even the best companies in the Valley, you can think of them as like one trick ponies. I mean, extraordinarily successful, Google, Facebook, but they don't usually change their stripes to roll a different way after a while. You know, it's, it's so very hard. So I don't think those large incumbents will make the change. Um, the reason that I do believe that there is a huge market for this is back in the 50s and 60s, half this country paid for news. We're not averse to paying for news. It just has to be valuable, affordable, convenient, all these other things. Um, and, you know, the way that I paint the, the market landscape, I think there are these premium players like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, et cetera. They're good, solid outlets. Uh, their pricing is a little premium. Like introductory offers aside, it can get pretty expensive for most average Americans. Then you've got sort of the niche guys uh, that are like individual writers spinning off and writing their own um, sort of Substack newsletter. I don't know if you guys know about that phenomenon, mm -hmm. but you know, journalists like Matt Taibbi and Andrew Sullivan and all these guys are writing, you know, really good um, newsletters out there. And that's also actually a little pricey if you sort of add up a few journalists. It can, can be really pricey. And I think the giant middle, you have the the generic stuff of Fox and CNN, and it's just been subsidized by ads all this time. But I think we can go back to an era where you have a paid version offering that covers most of the United States and most of the world, but it does have to be affordable. And the challenge is how do you do something affordable for news when it's so expensive to produce? Well, that's where I think something like the factual is a step in the right direction. One of our founding thesis is the best news is not at your outlet. That is, there's great writing in the world today, but odds are it's not on the site that you're on. There's so many sites in the world. Just odds are saying it's somewhere else. So the first problem is a search problem. Find the best news. It's going to be on a whole bunch of sites around the world. That's the level that we play at, and there's a small layer for that. Then we drive to other news outlets, and those news outlets will have a variety of business models, some ads, some subscription, 
we will license some content, they'll get licensing revenue, all kinds of things. I think there'll be a, a mix of stuff. But I think that that giant middle just wants something back like it was in the 50s and 60s. Give me what I need, give me a couple of viewpoints, uh, cut out the fluff, and let's move on with life. To wrap things up just a little bit, I want to touch on something that you spoke about earlier about small level journalists or journalistic companies. How, how can your business kind of push them up and to that end, why is that so important? Why, why can't we just trust the behemoths of the world? They are so sustained for so many years. I think they both have a role to play. So if the world were all independent journalists, um, I'm not sure that that's good either. Because while they do bring some really good viewpoints that they might have difficulty publishing in a mainstream outlet, the truth is the big outlets have some things going for them. They have editorial processes, fact-checking, proofreading, all kinds of stuff, right? Before you publish an article in the New Yorker, the New York Times, some group of people in the fact-checking team has to call every source you mentioned said, did this really happen? Did this guy call you? What, you know, like, that's a very important step that, that happens. And if you're writing on Substack, no one's doing that for you. So I think that you want both. And what we want, uh, it's a very capitalistic answer to the story, but you want choice and you want a range of options. Certainly. And then you want a way to assess the quality of these, which is where I think the factual comes in. So I don't see our mission as necessarily elevating independent journalism or supporting the big guys. I think it's supporting great writing, wherever that might be. Let's uncover that. Let those news outlets and those journalists get a little bit of fame. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, I often say this is the golden age of news. And people think that's crazy. They're like, what? Trust is all time low. It's garbage. And my argument is no, there's amazing writing. It's just really friggin' hard to find. Hopefully the factual uncovers that. Love that mission and love what you're doing with the factual. Now we want to just roll the virtual red carpet out for you. Uh, where can the people find your work as, as well as anything that you're putting online? Yeah, absolutely. So just go to thefactual.com and sign up for the newsletter. That's really the flagship product. It's the most sort of convenient way to get the news every day. Um, you can follow us on social media as well. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We do an abbreviated version of the newsletter uh, through those as well. Um, and then we have a website, thefactual.com slash news, where all the news is also aggregated and analyzed. So you can see that we've got other tools. We've got this tool called isthiscredible.com. Uh, really nifty little microsite. If you find any article, you're like, I don't know how good this is. Paste that URL in. It'll show you how good it is. You can also search and find the most credible stories and hot topics. Um, there's a Chrome extension that you can install, and it'll just show you our ratings right inside your Facebook and Twitter feed. So if that's where you get your news, you'll find it there. We've got a Reddit bot. If you're on Reddit, you can get our ratings. So we're in a lot of different places, but I would say the best place to start, just sign up for the newsletter and then life goes on. Absolutely. I certainly hope that you all do at least just check it out. I thoroughly enjoyed that Burst Your Bubble section of their website. That all being said, this was the Debate Without Debate podcast. We will see you all next week with a brand new episode. Until then. <laughs>